1: Libby will be back tomorrow for Free For All Friday. Well, the big story in Toronto this week is the unwanted apology offered by Police Chief James Raymer to Black and racialized people in this city after an internal report revealed what Black and racialized people have been talking about for decades, that there has been a disproportionate amount of force, aggression and violence toward Black, Indigenous and racialized people by Toronto police versus how white people are treated in similar circumstances. The numbers were tallied from Toronto police contact with individuals from 2020. Chief Raymer says he and others at the Toronto Police Service will fix the problem and claims work is already being done to do so.
0: And now, it's time to tune into the town.
1: We get reaction from our tune into the town panelists. Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of BlogTO, joins me in studio. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, on the phone, as is Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford of Ward 19 Beaches, East York. Hello to you all. Hello. Hey,
0: hey folks.
1: Well, let's go, let's go around the table, uh, and it's important to note we are all white people. Uh, Karen, what do you make of the report, the apology, and rebuffing of the apology?
2: Well, I think, you know, again, as you mentioned in your introduction, the report highlights what anecdotally everybody already knew. So I think that um, what was really needed is more concrete measures of how those numbers are going to shift. And there is no question that um, there is systemic racism in, in the force. and Even when I was a counselor, there was, you know, a support for the police to continue to card uh, individuals in certain neighborhoods, which means that they could be pulled over for no reason and asked to produce ID or have a bag searched, which is completely egregious. And yet even eight years ago, it was deemed acceptable police practice. And so uh, Council Bradford can speak to how things have shifted or not, but there is no question that it exists. And but the, but the outstanding question remains is that okay, you can apologize but what are you gonna do and and I think that that's where that's where they, the, the initiative fell short yesterday and and why that there was the reaction there was
1: i think that is the overall sentiment um we will go over to you, a city council now in twenty twenty two receiving this information um
3: what are your thoughts well i'd agree with with a lot of what Karen said there i mean this was uh not new information we' heard from racialized and indigenous communities for many, many years, that the the challenges with um, over policing and use of force, and now we have the data. and And to be fair, folks have been calling for this data for many, many years as well. And so this is really a landmark report in bringing these numbers forward. and I think it it demonstrates very clearly the problem. Uh, and to your point, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily lay out the solutions. And I understand why people are upset about this. This is an extremely emotionally charged uh, discussion. It's, uh, you know, it's very disheartening. And uh, the change and the reform that we want to see uh, is a slow process. And that's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. So we've been having these conversations in a big way at council since back to uh, 2020, uh, the fallout of George Floyd and what we were seeing in the U.S. And, of course, that's not so dissimilar from some of the challenges that we see here in our own city. But major reform work is underway. But when you are, when you are bringing reform to all of our agencies and institutions and certainly the Toronto Police, that takes time. Uh, we are now piloting a program to have, um, uh mental health crisis responders to to mental health crisis response on on 911 uh we're investing and in, and in focusing on building trust and relationships in different neighborhoods with our neighborhood police officer program but i think it's very clear that there is a lot more work to do so the apology from the chief you know, I think that is a a welcome step. There needs to be accountability and ownership of that. Uh, That was really important. But of course, that's not enough. And of course, that's only a first step. And uh, I think everybody understands why, uh, why people are upset right now.
1: Lauren, that apology, though, was not well received. In fact, it was really, it was almost found to be offensive by many advocates in the black community.
4: Yeah. So uh, Beverly Bain, who is a U of T professor in gender and women's studies and a longtime activist advocating for people in the queer community, in the black community, for women, she actually spoke up at the press conference to uh, Chief Raymer directly and said, we don't accept your apology. She said that it is insulting to black people because, like Councillor Bradford said, we are not like as a society, we don't need more reports and apologies. What Uh, Bain and her colleagues on the No Pride in Policing Coalition want to see his action, she basically said, We don't accept your apology. And what we want from you is to stop killing us, to stop harassing our children on the street. And again and again and again, year after year, this keeps happening. I mean, I I wanted to note that this wasn't the first report to come out on TPS data, um, race-based data. It was the first released by the Toronto Police Service itself because Ontario made them do that. But last year, uh, sorry, two years ago, in August of 2020, the Ontario Human Rights Commission released a report of its own, which again, found exactly the same thing, the same issues that people have been saying for decades, like you said. It's just, how many reports can we make and spend money on creating before somebody actually does something? And I think that is what a lot of members of the Black community were saying, like, save your apology, just stop harassing us. And I don't speak on behalf of of members of the Black community, but that was what a lot of the sentiment I was seeing. And people really loved uh, Bain's kind of like retort against... Raymer. So she's like now going viral on the internet for being like so cool and badass and speaking up. And yeah, so if you have a chance to see that video, it's really cool.
1: Well, and I, I guess the the one thing um, we're all in agreement on, everybody in the city who's at least enlightened with the evidence and hearing the stories, is that this is a problem, that black people, uh, indigenous people, racialized people are being targeted in a way that is completely different from the way white people are. So we're all in agreement on that. Um, I you know, I want to ask our former city councillor and our current city councillor. Um, yesterday, Desmond Cole, who is co-founder is, um, of is co-founder of No Pride in Policing, is asking City Hall to take action in reallocating funds from Toronto Police to other areas. Uh, Karen, is this a, is this a Toronto City Council issue to reform the police in the way that the advocates in the Black community are requesting?
2: Uh, there's no question that Toronto city council has a role to play in its reform of the police services. And because there are members of council that sit on the police services board and council uh, picks the chair of the police services board. So there is a responsibility of council to, to do the reforms that are required. And, um, you know, and then there's also a discussion about defunding the police and having resources spent in different ways. And, um, you know, I have, I have a different opinion on that. I think the police need to be funded. Um, I think the union needs to be brought on board, too, because, the you know, the union is making some strange comments about asking for context for these members, and, you know, the reality is when you respond to a situation with your gun already drawn, you've already made assumptions about what that situation is going to entail, and, you know, typically if you're in a racialized community with your gun drawn, you're pointing it at an unarmed suspect, and you, that that is, but but that is now what the common practice is, and so... It, it's so deeply embedded in how policing is done that there there is going to need, it, we do need more resources to help untrain some of that behavior and have a full awareness about what that is and what drives that behavior. Um, but but the reality is the police still do a, a, a needed service protecting the public and they need resources. And, and when I call 911, I want them to show up. And so it, it is a difficult, difficult situation.
1: Brad, you mentioned uh, some of the reforms, what reform will look like when it comes to Toronto City Council's involvement. Uh, you know, could you expand on that a little bit?
3: Oh, yeah. It, it's a couple of different things. You know, one of the first things that, uh, you know, the mayor moved motions on a few years back was, was getting more oversight and detail into the police budget. It's important to remember that the police budget, city hall is required to fund that police budget. Uh, we do not direct police officers. That's obviously very important. You wouldn't want elected officials, uh, telling police how to do their job. And because of the police act, we are required to, to, fulfill those budget needs in order to deliver community safety and and policing in in the city of Toronto. So there are constraints there. And as Karen alluded to, you know, a lot of this stuff, um, you know, salaries, wages, all that is settled in arbitration. Uh, So it goes straight to arbitration. And, you know, council is not sitting there negotiating what wages are going to be or how much we're paying frontline officers. So when the police budget comes to Toronto City Council, uh, a lot of that stuff is already baked in. And, um, there's, there's not necessarily a lot of room for us to, to move and reallocate. Um, one of the interesting conversations about, you know, less money to the police has been, A lot of these programs that we want to develop, like the mental health crisis response teams, you know, having a mental health response to 911 calls for folks in crisis, Um, the neighborhood police officer program, where, where we're having dedicated officers in communities, the same neighborhoods, working with youth, working with community, building relationships of trust, and frankly, trying to repair those relationships that have been badly damaged over many years. That work is underway, but that doesn't necessarily cost less money in some instances that costs more money. So we need to be pragmatic about this. We need to look at the issue in its totality and recognizing that when someone is having a negative interaction with frontline police officers, you know, there are a lot of things that have gone wrong along the way before that interaction. And, and it all goes back to pathways out of poverty. Uh, And that's a much more complicated and, and dynamic issue. But, Fundamentally, we need to make sure that folks have good opportunities in this city to grow and to learn and to prosper and to feel like there are pathways out of poverty um, so that you can get a good job and you can get to school and uh, you can take care of some of those basic necessities. All of this stuff is related none of it can be considered in isolation. Um, but the report is pretty damning. The data is very, very clear. And we still have a lot more work to do to improve that.
1: We will be switching topics. But if you'd like to get in on the conversation, lines are always open 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-744-740. Jane for Libby, along with Brad Bradford, Karen Stintz and Lauren O'Neill. Lauren, would you like to add to what what the former councillor and the current councillor are expressing about reform.
4: For sure. I mean, I'm no expert, but I definitely agree with Karen when she says a lot of people have bad interactions with the police. So 230% more likely people who, of the black community are to have a gun drawn on them than people who are white. And that, that's among people who are unarmed. Right. So I wonder if, I mean, I'm no expert again, but if there can be something done With the police force to evaluate who they're hiring to screen these people better for racist attitudes. And I know that training is important and and cultural sensitivity training, but I've met a lot of great cops and I've also met some cops that are not great people and their attitudes kind of bleed through. So I think maybe if they want, they could pay more attention kind of to screening for those kind of attitudes. You know, hire better cops. That's that's well, my. Well, you know what? It's interesting. Yesterday,
1: my panelists. One of my panelists, uh, Julian Falconer, the human rights lawyer, he was saying exactly that. That the hiring process around around bringing in new police officers needs to change. And he said it's not an education issue. He said a lot of these officers have higher learning, um, but but policing attracts a certain kind of mentality, exactly. and therein lies what maybe needs to be investigated a bit more.
4: Yeah, I completely agree. A lot of these, I always like to say like bouncers at nightclubs love to go on to try to become police because they want to have, you know, power and authority over people. And like I said, there are so many great police officers, but there are some really problematic types of people who go into policing specifically, and and you see it playing out in the way that they're treating people of color um, in, in Toronto and everywhere in North America.
1: Let's go to the phones. Jody in Toronto, what would you like to add? Hello? Hi, Jody. Turn down your radio and uh, give us your opinion.
5: No, I didn't catch my name when you said it. Uh, I was a little disappointed with this uh, temporary uh, police chief yesterday. Uh, certainly, we should try to stamp out racism wherever we can, avoid it, whatever. It, it has no place in our lives. But what he did yesterday, I think, endangers our city more so. It seems that we're mirroring the states now with the defund the police and... Uh, we know what's happening there with the rampant crime. Police are leaving the force. They're not being replaced. Uh, I think we're just re- mirroring the states, and that really scares me. The ad- The advocate for the uh, black community yesterday, she was very, uh, she upset me to a point. Certainly, I understood a lot of her grievances, what she was saying. But, you know, when she's saying, stop killing us, stop killing us, uh, where is this coming from? It's coming from the states. And one thing I should add, you know, well,
1: no, but that's that's what this report uh, alludes to, uh, provides evidence for. And in fact, previous reports say that there is systemic racism within the Toronto police force has nothing to do with what's happening in the United States. So uh, we'll let you go on that. But I, I do want to get to our other caller here, Gabriela in Kitchener. Go ahead. You're on Fight Back.
6: Uh, yes, I wanted to mention about the uh, police discrimination. Uh, it goes even beyond color and race. Uh, they also discriminate on age. Uh, my husband was in a pretty serious car accident about four or five years ago. The young lady who was actually at fault got off, and my husband was completely dismissed. Uh, the attitude of this particular policeman, in waterloo was appalling it was just it was it was appalling and heartbreaking to see that someone could be so um so mean towards a person who obviously was a scene is a senior hmm. well thank so you for i think yeah. that i think that maybe they do need to screen Of people a little bit better because, yes, some of them are just not nice
1: people. All right, Gabriella, thanks for your story. Uh, We'll get some wrap up comments on this segment before we move on. Karen, this seems to be a common thread uh, the recruiting of police officers and that process and the reforming perhaps of that process.
5: Yeah,
2: there's no question. I think you're absolutely right. What what draws people to policing is is a certain mentality around authority and uh, respect for authority and demanding authority and then exerting authority and control. And so that is uh, an, a, a, an element that's been um, for evidence in police forces all over Canada and the RCMP and, and throughout North America. And so it, it has to be addressed.
1: Councillor Bradford?
3: Well, I would just add to that, uh, you know, that uptake for police enrollment, job applications, those numbers are way down um, compared to, Historic numbers, and so I think that there, there certainly is the sentiment that we've heard from our callers, and and what we've heard in the feedback on the apology, and, and how all of this has gone, is is folks are not happy, and uh, there's there's been a bit of shine come off the, the badge, and you know I think that there's a lot of work to do to restore that trust, and as we rebuild a model of policing um, that looks and functions differently than it has historically. That is an opportunity to engage with new, uh, new communities and in, engage with folks who may not necessarily have historically been drawn to policing, um, but going forward with a new approach, um, with new relationships, um, you know, hopefully um, we, can, we can get some, some new voices at the table.
1: It is our tune into the town panel heard every Thursday after the new news here on Zoomer Radio Councillor Brad Bradford joins us this week along with Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO. Let's switch topics and move on to Active TO. It's been recommended by City of Toronto staff that Active TO will not be shutting down Lakeshore West the way it was in 2021 and 2022 over concerns about gridlock. Lauren, good idea. I know you guys were chatting about it a little bit last week as well.
4: Yes. Um I would not say that it's a bad idea to stop active TO. I think that the rationale that some councillors put forward behind it is severely flawed. We've had congestion in Toronto for as long as I can remember. When a Blue Jays game is going on in the city, like long before COVID, you couldn't drive, right? And, And so for them to try to say that this is because of COVID, that we did this, you know, active TO, opened up the lakeshore, which everyone loves. Like, I do, I, I love Active TO and I'm going to miss it um, if, you know, when it's more infrequent. But you cannot blame Active TO on the increased congestion in downtown Toronto. That's just makes no sense because we've always had back congestion. And for, I guess, the city to kind of kowtow to the CEO of the Blue Jays saying, you know, we don't want these Active TO road closures. For people who live and pay taxes in Toronto to use their streets to rollerblade along the lake or bike or walk in favor of people who live in the suburbs to be able to drive their cars in and, you know, go to baseball games like that. I think it's offensive to a lot of people in Toronto from what I've seen. I'm trying to be impartial here. (laughs) Clearly, um, I have feelings about it. But uh, yeah, I I think Councillor Bradford made a lot of really good comments yesterday. Okay. But Councillor
1: Bradford, uh, tell us what you said to Council yesterday.
3: Well, that was it. I mean, uh, you know, I love active CEO and folks who follow along know I'm out there and, and like to get around the city in different active ways. Um, this goes back to 2020 and it was a pandemic response in a time where we needed to ensure we had physical distancing opportunities. We wanted to people get outside, do it safely. And also we had this opportunity with Lakeshore West, another part of the city where traffic volumes were down. And so the idea of of giving that space back to people, back to pedestrians, back to cyclists, uh, you know, it was one that was welcomed with a, a warm reception. We had tens of thousands of people out there using it, taking advantage of that program and having a really good time. I think it was a government response that that really showed uh, the best of what local government can do when we sort of remove the barriers that historically have been there from preventing us from taking bold action on things like this and trying something new. And you know what, like the sky didn't fall, uh, it was actually very successful and the survey work that we did, um, you know, echoed that sentiment. But fast forward to where we are today, um, you know, a lot of things have changed. In 2021, we had a total of one street permit requested for that section of Lakeshore West. And this year we will have 250 street permits and events going on. So, you know, when the when the letter came out from, uh, you know, the, the Toronto Blue Jays club, you know, I just made the point that, you know, outside of the 1994 lockout and the past two years of pandemic, when the Jays have been down in Buffalo, we typically have 81 home games a year uh, with the Blue Jays. And, and I love going to the Jays, big fan. I remember 92, 93, I'm all about it. I love going down to the Jays game, but it's not without impact. And, you know, other festivals, Caravana, not without impact, 17 TFC games, not without impact, uh, four weeks of the CNE, all of these are th- coming back online. And I just thought, you know, in the conversation to suggest that Active ActiveTO is the reason why we have congestion in Toronto. I mean, are you new? Like, if you've been here for a few <laughs> years, we know that this is a city that has challenges with traffic. And, you know, my background's in urban planning. So you can look at the maps. You can look at our cycles of development and you know that this city was largely, you know, after we were a streetcar suburbs, we, we became a city that was built around the automobile. So those challenges are not going away. Anyone that suggests that you can just snap your fingers and, and make all of the traffic congestion, uh, alleviated, um, is being dishonest and disingenuous. And I will remind folks in 2022, we've actually only managed to do the program twice. So I'm sure many of our listeners who are maybe in their car right now, uh, you know, you've probably been in traffic more than just two days a year, and Active TO ended up emerging as a punching bag for congestion in Toronto. Yeah. That's not fair. We need to rework the program. Okay. We're going to do that. Um, but I think it's a great model for us to build on, and we have to do more of this going forward. I do
1: have a follow up question for you, Brad, um, but I do want to hear from Karen as well in terms of what is the place for Active TO as the pandemic is appearing to wane at
2: this point? I think there is a role for active I think that we, there's certainly been an appreciation for the value of public space, and there is a desire by the community at large to create more of it. Um, you know, again, with, with it, it's everything with a scarce resource, right? Competing interests on a scarce resource, and you get conflict. And Lake Shore Boulevard happens to be um, it has many uses and it serves many purposes. And now uh, we find ourselves in a situation where maybe we can't accommodate every single one, and But that's, again, what council does is it looks at the situation and responds accordingly. And I think that in this case, council made the right decision because there are events that are taking place again. There are sporting events. There are businesses reopening. There are families reuniting. There is lots of activity taking place on the lakeshore that wasn't there when the streets closed down. Um, All that to say is I think that um, TO should continue to look for uh, public spaces that they can animate for cyclists and uh walkers and pedestrians and people who are using their roller blades because it is something that Torontonians have indicated they will use. Yeah, they like it.
1: Uh, And to your point, Brad, uh, last night I made my way across the Gardner. I live near Kipling and Bloor, and I had to go over to Coxwell and Girard. And, of course, the Blue Jays game is on at 7, and it took me an hour and a quarter. And that's with
3: all the roads wide open, Mm. right? (laughs) No active TO. And you know what, Jane? I bet you're not saying cancel the Blue Jays. I'm not saying cancel the Blue Jays either. I love the Jays. But this is sort of the point. There are a lot of things going on. There always have been. There always will be. That is the shine of the city. That is what makes Toronto sing in the summertime. So we love it, but it's not without inconvenience and it's not without some frustration and some challenges. Our task as local government and the city of Toronto is to try and balance all of those competing interests and come up with something that's, you know, practical, pragmatic, makes sense and leverages the opportunities that we have to animate and bring some vibrancy to these spaces.
1: Okay, and is it premature to ask you what it will look like active TO or you're still working that out?
3: No, I mean, it, it's going to look uh, very similar to what you've seen it look like right now. You, like last year uh, and the year before, we did 20 closures. This year, we've only done two. I think that we could have been better on on having some foresight and some planning to try and line those up with the big events that are already going on. For example, you know, we did uh ride for, for brain health a few weeks back, and that was uh, the DVP closure. Like we can try and coordinate some of these. We can provide more notice to users. We can provide more notice to residents and folks who are coming into the city so that you can can plan around it, allocate enough time for your drive, you can take transit, you know, we can figure it out together. But we need to be more proactive in that planning. I've definitely heard that from a lot of folks. And I think there will be other opportunities to look beyond Lakeshore west which has really been the crown jewel because you get six and a half kilometers of, of, of closure and that's a lot of fun for people but maybe we take this to other parts of the city that are already very pedestrian oriented uh, where there is a lot of at-grade animation and retail and cafe space and where we already have a ton of people and rather than trying to have conflict between pedestrians and, and drivers you know there there could be opportunities to just give that space back to pedestrians so All of this has been a pandemic response, the silver lining in that though, is it's challenged us to think about our space differently, to think about our city differently, and to explore new opportunities and to do some pretty big things.
1: We have time for one more very, very quick topic here with our tune Into the town panelists. I wanted to get all of your takes, uh, especially our former councillor and our current councillor. And Lauren, I'll begin with you. Uh, Kristen Wong-Tam was quoted yesterday as saying she will not stand for the NDP leadership after being re-elected uh, for the first time as an MPP for Toronto Centre after many, many years on Toronto City Council. She is seen as a local leader. Surprised by that decision? You know, what do you think about uh, where she's headed now?
4: You know, I wasn't actually surprised by it because it's her first term as an MPP. So she might not want to just dive right in to lead the party. And also, I understand, like, she I follow her on Twitter. She's got a little baby, like a, a young child at home, and, and she's done so much for the city. And she was a great counselor. I mean, she's going to do so much for the province as well. But maybe she just, you know, needs some time to ramp up to that. Um, I'd be interested to hear what the other, the other panelists yeah. have to say. Yeah,
1: Karen, you know, Kristen Wong Tam.
2: Yeah, certainly she has the the the, the capability um, and the talent to run for leader, but I think her timing is not now. And, and she knows that, and so she's a smart politician, and I think she made the right choice.
1: Brad, what do you think? I mean, do you think she might have her eye on the mayorship one day or stay within provincial politics? I mean, we're purely speculating here, unless you know
3: personally. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we'd have to ask her about that. But yeah. what, what I will say in the, the short time I had to to work with Kristen Wantam uh, you know, she's very smart. She's very thoughtful. She's very empathetic. Uh, and, you know, she's done a lot of big things in her time here on council. Uh, so I would expect her to continue uh, with that ambition at the province. And, you know, the new Democratic Party has a has a lot of thinking to do. Uh, they sort of need to determine what type of party they want to be, what kind of leadership they want to run on and what that message is going to be to Ontarians. And I always say, you know, it's it's not about party politics. It's about people. Uh, I have friends in all parties and you want good people around the table, you know, shaping the conversations in caucus, shaping policy, shaping what that party is going to stand for. And then you come out the other side, you move into an election, you take it to the voters and, and they make the decision. So I'm sure Kristen will do well there. She'll have lots of success. And regardless of whether she's running for leadership or not, it's good that she's in the room having those conversations with her colleagues and the NDP will be stronger for it.
1: Okay, solid place to leave our conversation today. I thank you all for your time.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. Take care.
1: It's our tune into the town panel heard every Thursday here on Fight Back Zoomer Radio after the new news. Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO, Karen stintz CEO of Variety Village, and this week Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford of Ward Nineteen Beaches, East York. Coming up next here on Fight Back, should Russian and Belarusian tennis players be allowed to compete in the U.S. Open given the war in Ukraine? We discuss a decision to allow them to play at this summer's tournament next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host... Jane Brown.
1: Libby is back tomorrow. Russian and Belarusian tennis players will be allowed to compete at this summer's U.S. Open, despite Vladimir Putin's Russian war in Ukraine. The decision was announced on Tuesday by the U.S. Tennis Association, the USTA, which will adopt the approach used by the ATP and the WTA, since the invasion, where Russian and Belarusian players compete under a neutral flag. The USTA's decision comes after Wimbledon became the first elite tennis event to ban Russian and Belarusian athletes. So the question for you, if you'd like to get involved in the conversation, should Russian athletes be penalized for a decision taken by their government and leader Vladimir Putin? Number to call 416 360 740, or toll-free 740 4740 Joining us to discuss on the line from Kiev, Ukraine, retired Ukrainian tennis player, Alexander Dogopolov. Alexander, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi. How are you making out there in Ukraine? Well, surviving. Yeah.
7: Alive. Um, um, it's good enough, but tough. Many people dying, many people fighting. So we're doing what we can.
1: We all feel for you around the world. uh, And it's especially close for me. My husband is of Ukrainian descent. So we are and and I've been to Ukraine three times and uh, it it truly is breaking our heart. Uh, And, you know, in terms of these these venues like the U.S. Open, like Wimbledon, I mean, presumably, you feel that the Russian and Belarusian players should not be allowed to compete in the U.S. Open.
7: Uh, yeah, I believe so. I believe uh, tennis has done a weak job to to cle- clear the image of the Russian players, because obviously what's happening is terrible. And I think they do have the the public power and influence to speak out as a group, at least. And nothing has been has been done to distance them from from the government. And we know that Putin's government has a very high support rate. And we know, presumably, few players that support him, and they have family members. So we think, uh, at least, they should have distanced themselves from from their government and from what's happening. And that hasn't happened. So. I believe that they shouldn't be allowed to play because we know already a few matches against the Ukrainians and Ukrainians could not uh, mentally play against them. Mm-hmm. Even there was one retirement and it, it, it's tough, you know. It's tough when you don't know, when they haven't said, said a word and uh, you have to play against these people. You want to make sure that they don't support it and for now nothing much has been done. They said yeah, tennis plays for peace but I believe
1: that's not enough. what What do you know uh, about the Russian and Belarusian players in terms of their allegiance to Vladimir Putin, uh, their support of Russia and this horrific uh, genocide slash war that is happening in Ukraine? Um, I mean, you can't I guess you can't paint a wide brush across all of them, but would you say that they are all uh, aligned with their country, Russia?
7: I don't think all of them support it for sure. I'm sure not. Uh, uh, some uh, I heard that are supportive. I, I can't name the names mm-hmm. because it was from our Ukra- Ukrainian players who who are inside the the tennis uh, tournaments and speaking with people. And it's tough to you know pinpoint who is supportive, who is not supportive. But uh, it is how it is. They're just silent, which uh, makes us unhappy because. I think they have strong public influence, and if people like that, as a group, especially if, you know, all the Russian players, would stand up and say we're against the war. That that would hurt uh, their regime, and yeah. would uh, show a nice time. And uh, and we know people who who did stuff like this. So you know, some people say yeah, if they speak, uh, it's dangerous, but that's that's not really true. There's an actor who spoke out, and he's located in Moscow. He has children and he spoke out for one and a half into, uh, hours and uh, condemning the regime, condemning the war, condemning everything and he's still alive, he's not in jail. So I, I believe it's possible for, you know, famous tennis players as a group to speak out. But I, I'm not sure that all of them are not supporting this, so it's it's a mess.
1: Well, so under what circumstances should a player be allowed, in your mind, to be able to play for one of the big Grand Slams, uh, the U.S. Open? Would they have to openly openly hold a news conference and express that they're completely against what Vladimir Putin is doing or defect or never go back to Russia? Like, under what circumstances should these athletes be allowed to, to practice their professions?
7: I think if they make a statement at least a group statement altogether, you know. Like uh, I believe the head of ATP said that uh, they are against the war, but w- where is at least one word from them as a group or, or, or altogether condemning their government, condemning the war? The only thing I heard from Rublev was no war in the first days of the war. But right. come on, this is, this is really not enough at this moment. After we saw Butch, after we saw atrocities, what means no war? No, no, which war? This war, or the Second World War, or uh, should Ukraine stop fighting? They have to have a position because I think morally they they just have to. It's it got to a magnitude where they have to speak, and if they speak, of course, it's tough. It will be tough to punish them. And ATP or WTA has done nothing to help them do it. I haven't heard someone change uh, passports. I haven't heard someone mm-hmm. want to speak out. They're just pretending nothing is happening. So, when we're talking... We
1: yeah, sorry, go ahead.
7: Yeah, if if they make a statement, I would say that uh, they should keep playing and uh, and we can know that uh, they're against it and uh, everything is clear. So at the moment, it's more questions than answers.
1: Right, because Alexander, and I'm speaking with Alexander Dogopolov, a retired Ukrainian tennis player, a very successful athlete himself, um Alexander, the individuals who are on the tour, so we're talking about the Daniel Medvedevs, uh, Arena Sabalenka, you know, they're traveling the world and presumably they are recipients of... Uh, what is actually happening in Ukraine, as opposed to the disinformation they're being fed if they were in Russia. So they know what's going on. They know the reality. So it seems like it would not be a stretch to stand up and and voice opposition in a real way.
7: For sure. For sure, there's there's ways for them. Some of them live uh, not in Russia, uh, together with their families. Uh, For sure, they have the money. They have uh options to ask a t p to help out to change their country. There's different options, and I cannot believe that one or a few of them could enough stand up and spoken against it, but they just want to to keep in between you know to keep their fan base in russia to keep uh keep away and just say nothing but that's i think that's unfair and uh They can't just continue pretending nothing is happening.
1: Well, and it's not unlike uh, those at the Kremlin who are around Vladimir Putin. We've heard leaks that there are those who are dissatisfied, who are very much against what Putin is doing. And yet, like the tennis players, they're not saying anything and they're not leaving.
7: Uh, For sure. Yeah, we're hearing uh, a lot of people unhappy in the Russian government, but still, seems not enough. Some, some are leaving the country, but at the moment, he's controlling everything, I believe, as we can see, yes. so well, we would like, for sure, we would like more people to speak out and something to happen to, for him to be unbearable to continue this, you know, but uh, at the moment, it is how it is.
1: Well, that is the message uh, from our conversation from you today, is that they need to stand up and speak out. Uh, before I let you go, what are you doing these days? Do you play tennis casually, or what? Uh, have you switched professions? What are you up to?
7: I don't play tennis at all. <laughs> I haven't hold, held a racket for a year, though, uh, maybe more, two years. Uh, I stopped last year. I finished my career because my wrist uh, never recovered from injuries. Right. And now I'm just trying to help with what I can, practicing shooting in case I I will need it in the future, Uh, helping out with uh, humanitarian stuff, uh, delivering some uh, bulletproof tests. Next, soon we're planning to go to the front line to bring some some stuff to our fighters. So just helping out the country with what I can. Sounds
1: like it. Uh, Well, we thank you for taking a few minutes out of your day to speak with us all the way over here in Toronto. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Slava Ukraini. Ukrainian tennis player Alexander Dogopalov, retired Ukrainian tennis player. You can really hear in his voice uh, what life is like over there. I mean, that is, that's is—that's what they're doing. They are defending their country and helping their people in whatever way they can. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And still to come, masking mandates are no longer required by the province for health care settings. But some doctors are making sure their staff and patients are masked. We speak with one of those doctors next.
0: Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby is off today. She will return tomorrow for free for all Friday. Well, as of last Saturday, the province ended remaining masking mandates, including in health care settings, with the exception of long term care and retirement homes. Hospital administrators across the GTA, including Kevin Smith of the University Health Network, publicly made it clear that they would keep a masking policy in place for staff and patients amid the continued threat of COVID-19. But what will the situation be in clinics and in doctors' offices? Our Fight Back friend, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, joins us with her perspective on this. Dr. Iris, how have you been?
8: Many thanks for having me back, Jane. I'm doing well, but a little flummoxed by what has happened here in this building and removing the mask bandage.
1: Oh, okay. Tell us more what's going on where you are.
8: I received a notification just yesterday from the management. I'm at 1849 Young Street, which happens to be at Young and Davisville. That's a major medical dental center in which there's an x-ray, a lab, lots of dentists and rheumatologists included. And they've now said masks, we're going to encourage it, but no longer require it. In addition, they're removing capacity limits in the elevators. Now think about that. that's an enclosed public space. They're removing them in the washrooms. they're removing the one way paths that we used to have in stairwells. So with all these changes, naturally, I'm concerned about what that means to my patients
1: And what about in your office? can are you and other physicians in your uh, building are you allowed to implement your own masking mandates uh, once you're inside the door of your office?
8: We have clear signage that says everybody has to wear a mask. And if they don't have one, we provide one to them. Now, Toronto Public Health has generously given us literally boxes of N95 masks. We're handing them out to individuals. I only wish they would have that in the lobby of this building to make sure that everybody who's coming in is in fact safe. I worry about my high risk patients. You can imagine a patient seeing the rheumatologists here in this building. They have to get their labs and x-rays done. They're standing in long lineups, shoulder to shoulder, in a ceiling, which is less than 10 feet, I will add. So that's pretty dangerous. We know masks are needed anywhere. A person can smell an odor, essentially. So if they are in a supermarket, well, you smell that cooked food, well, that's a sign that a mask is needed in that space. Cigarette smoke. Ditto. Same idea. N95s block four out of five cases. That's how successful they are at preventing infection. And we know there's going to be an uptick in cases. And we are still in the midst of a pandemic.
1: Dr. Iris, for those patients you're, you're talking about, so maybe elderly, immunocompromised, are these individuals, despite the lifting of the mask mandate, are they still wearing their masks?
8: People who are worried generally are wearing the masks. But what concerns me is there's there seems to be, I guess we could call it a part of the pandemic fatigue, the mask fatigue, the vaccine fatigue, in which people have essentially said, well, I guess it's summertime, it's nice out, I guess I can give up. And I appeal to these individuals, that's not acceptable. We are still having peaks. And waves of of these infections, and we're so deeply concerned about the potential for new variants of concern to come up. Every single case represents a potential for more variants of concerns to emerge. And what's concerning also is that we see wastewater signals in Ontario rising. I'm seeing cases daily in my practice that cannot be just dismissed. It's not enough to say, oh, Our hospital, we have hospital capacity, therefore we can open the floodgates. And I'm in good company when I say that. If we listen to the head of the Ontario science advisory table, they say the very same thing. We let go of the mask mandates too soon. Ditto for the Ontario Hospital Association. So clearly there's a lot of political stuff involved in this decision And I don't think it has very much to do with the medicine, which has clearly shown that masks make a tremendous difference in protecting both the user and the people around us.
1: Oh, we're with Dr. Iris Gora Finkel here, Jane, for Libby on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. If you have a question for Dr. Iris about COVID, about masking, if you'd like to express your opinion, whether you're wearing your mask, uh, even though you're no longer mandated to do so, uh, give us a call, 416-360-0740, or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Iris, in your building, uh, among your co- colleagues, other 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 physicians that have offices in the same building are they more? Are they practicing what
8: you're practicing as well? What I find interesting is that I've spoken to a dentist. Now, understand, dentists this is private medicine. It's just an open whoever wants to come, come, and it's all good. And they seem to be downplaying it. Whereas in the public system, it's it's you know we're very strict about it. The physicians whom I've spoken to uniformly have said, absolutely, we want a mask. The dentists also feel strongly, but not quite as strongly about it, because there's that financial incentive piece. The problem that people do not realize is that if a family doctor gets sick, or a rheumatologist, or an x-ray tech, or any one of the healthcare workers is unwell, well, that's one person who's not going to be able to work, and that may actually cause harm to the individuals whom they're trying to serve. So that's that's something that we have to keep in mind. So in an act of true, unusual for me, civil disobedience, I've taken my own signage and put it on the doors, the front doors of this medical building. Sure, I imagine the management's going to come down on me and say, wait a second, this is our building, you can't do that. But I think for now, I put up that signage saying, I think we need to keep people safe. When did you do that? this morning. Okay.
1: Uh, so any, <laughs> any reaction yet?
8: <laughs> not as yet. <laughs> but it, it could happen. And if it does, we're ready to put more signs up on a daily basis. I feel that strongly about it. People come with the expectation, and this is a reasonable expectation, that they will not get COVID when they see a doctor. And yet, who is visiting the doctor's office? Often people who are sick so and we know covid has many different presentations and we know that individuals who are vaccinated or advised to you know even if they isolate according to the time they could still in fact be transmitting the disease unfortunately vaccination although it does reduce the transmission of disease it doesn't do that as effectively for omicron as it has for previous variants right so that possibility is very much there Doctor, what
1: are you hearing about uh, in terms of the booster that we will all be offered in the fall? Uh, Moderna, their researchers, as I, I'm sure you know, they, they've they come up and they've done a trial of a new vaccine, which has sort of the original f- uh, f- uh, fighting power against the old uh, COVID-19 variant, along with some protection against Omicron.
8: Absolutely. So this is a messenger RNA vaccine, just like the old one. It's half the dose that the previous vaccine had been, but you're right. It's called a bivalent vaccine. So the messenger RNA is not only aimed at the spike protein of the previous variant, the one we've been using all along, so it serves as a bit of a booster that way, but it is also a new vaccine. It's, it's a messenger RNA aimed at the spike protein of the Omicron variant specifically. So this is great. Their data showed a strong response against Omicron with a side effect profile similar to what we've seen in the past. The disadvantage is that we're still lacking real-world data on it. So we have to, get, have to have Health Canada's approval. We don't have that just yet. But assuming that comes, we don't have the real-world data on it, so we should not be fully relying only on vaccination efforts. Nor should we be reactive. We need to be proactive. So remember this whole song and dance about imperfectly moving parts? That still applies. Is hand washing perfect? No. Are masks perfect? No. I said, you wear that N95, you're going to prevent four out of five cases. You got a surgical mask, it'll prevent two out of three cases. So that's pretty good, but it's not perfect. And vaccinations are the very same way. So the, the research trial that Moderna has done on their vaccine looks promising, but it's not the same as having data points from millions of users of that vaccine. And so that's what I look forward to seeing.
1: Well, right. So what, what's going to happen between now and when that booster rollout comes in the fall?
8: Well, I imagine we will see the beginning of a new variant of concern. I think most epidemiologists and public health experts anticipate that happening at some point in the fall. Because it's just, you know, so we're so wonderful at predicting. What do we do? We look at the past and say, this is the pattern of the past. Therefore, it will probably be the pattern of the future. And I say that because we'll have a combination pack of scary things happening. We've loosened up. I think prematurely on the masking mandates, you know, we've loosened up a lot on what's, you know, you've heard what's happening in the travel industry as well, where testing is no longer required, you know, so that's going to start happening on June the 20th. So with all the, you know, letting go and then the number of people getting vaccines, like how rapidly are people getting that third dose? Believe it or not, less than half of Canadians have that third dose. Right. And that's a serious problem. Is that a surprise to you? I think the messaging from public health needs to change. Fully vaccinated is not two doses, period. It's three doses, and that's at a minimum.
1: And it's four doses if you're over 60.
8: If you're over 60, it's four doses for sure. And then when we see, we'll see what happens with those. It is a moving target, but we have to change the definition of what we as Canadians are calling fully vaccinated. It's nothing short of heartbreaking, frankly to see my patients who are 59, no joke, and not yet 60, biting at the bit to get that fourth dose because their third dose was months ago, Mm -hmm. and then reading in the papers that we are wasting over a million doses, a million and a half doses have gone to waste. If that doesn't make your blood boil, I frankly don't know what can. It
1: does. I'm about to turn 57. I'll take a fourth shot.
8: I took my fourth <laughs> shot when I was visiting my mom in the United States. Yeah. I just took it that. Yeah. Well, uh, you know what? If they if
1: they offer a shot and uh, I fall into the right age category, I will be the first one in line. And I know our listeners feel the same way. Um, the people who are older definitely have taken up as many shots as, as they've been offered to this point, I think.
8: Well, that's the best we can do. And the sad truth is, even when you get that third shot, what winds up happening, or that fourth shot, is that it's not providing sticky enough immunity to Omicron. So you're going to be protected to the tune of about 50 to 60% against mild disease. Great hospitalization. You're not going to go to the hospital. Chances are greatly in your favor that you're not going to go to hospital. So fortunately, that immunity immunity to mild disease starts to drop after just a month, two months maybe, but the fact of the matter is we are still highly susceptible to the disease. Oh, and I'll ask you a question. Where well, does actually, land? Dr. In the Iris, family
1: doctor's office. Dr. Iris, we are one minute past one, so I've, <laughs> I should have uh, said goodbye to you sooner, so we'll have to leave the rest for our next conversation. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jay. Thank you, Dr. Iris Gorofinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. Speaking of which, here comes Bob Comsick with the news.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air.